This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Five years ago this week, it seemed like the rain would never stop. Floods in Colorado killed 10 people, displaced thousands, and caused billions in damage. Lyons was hit especially hard. The town sits at the confluence of the north and south St. Vrain Creeks, which became torrents. The flood left its mark on people's property and their psyches. Lyons resident Bob Brackenridge is a flood researcher, and so it was like his life's work knocked on his door and chased him down. Welcome to the program. Thank you for the invitation, Ryan. Take us back to September 2013. You've spent your career studying floods. Did you see this one coming? I absolutely did not see this one coming. It's uh, perhaps a little bit like a dentist uh, waking up in the middle of the night with a really bad toothache and being surprised. Uh, No, I mean, I, I drive back and forth to work over the creeks. And like many people in town, I think just never imagined how large our little St. Frank Creeks could become. It had been raining for a few days, of course, before the downpour that burst the St. Vrain from its banks. I wonder if that early rain made things better or worse? I think the rain ahead of the big flood made things better because it gave the town some warning of what was to come. People didn't know that, of course, that such a huge flood would be coming to their doorstep. But the residents who live right on the creek were watching the creek in the day, especially the day before the big flood crest went through. Hmm. So they were literally checking every couple of hours out their front doors to see what the river was doing. Do you think that made them more prepared then to evacuate and, and maybe ended up saving lives? It saved lives. The stories that people tell who live right on the creek were that they, they checked it and they saw the water rising minute by minute. When it was coming up so fast, they got their family and their pets and they got out. This is in such stark contrast to the Big Thompson flood of 1976. Nearly a year's worth of rain fell in a matter of hours and more than 140 people were killed. So I'm curious, you're a flood researcher. Had you ever been in a flood? No, I'd never been in a flood. I grew up in Illinois. I'd been in a tornado. Okay. (laughs) But no, I'd mapped and... uh, written papers on and studied many, many floods over the last 25 years, but had never experienced one uh, so up close and personal. You had to leave your home. You spent months in temporary housing. How do you think that experience affected you? Well, our entire community was evacuated for that period of time. Um, Everybody who was living in town at that time, we all have memories. And If it just rains for one day and the creeks rise a little bit, uh, it's quite remarkable how (laughs) how the people really keep an eye on it, Uh, just like in the Midwest, people keep an eye on on the storm clouds. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and I'm speaking with flood researcher Bob Brackenridge, who joins me from Boulder. And we're talking on the the five-year anniversary of the flood that decimated Lyons, a community where he lives. What do you think you most lost and most gained in in that flood? Oh, that's a good question. What did we we lose other than a couple bridges, uh, many residents? Um, The town lost some of the only housing in town that was uh, for lower-income people. 
And it lost a lot of infrastructure. We had to, the town had to build new sewage treatment plant. It's still waiting for construction for the second of the two bridges it lost. I think it lost a sense of security, um, though my concern is that new residents who don't remember the flood probably feel a lot more secure than they should. Hmm. What leads you to say that? This is one of those events that, you know, you can categorize flood risk uh, on flood insurance maps, the 100-year flood map, etc. But in this case, the river caused a lot of its damage by excavating its channel and moving its channel and actually taking structures into its channel. And now some of those big chasms that the river excavated, they've actually been backfilled And if you walked by the area today, you wouldn't even know. And I think what I hear you saying is that that could happen again. Is that right? That's exactly right. And I'm afraid that some residents think that we've experienced the big event. It's in the past, and we've we've gotten it over with. Been there, done that. Well, this this raises uh, the question of whether this was, five years ago, a 100-year flood, a 1,000-year flood, I actually remember there being a reference to it as a biblical flood. Bob, I think at one point the National Weather Service was using the word biblical. How do you describe what happened five years ago and its likelihood of happening again? Well, after the flood, I went to the Denver Public Library and I retrieved uh, old photographs of lions. I looked for photographic evidence of past floods. And in 1894, there's a photograph that shows the river as large as it was in 2013. There were 20 frame houses in the river, and you can see several of them floating downstream. You can walk over to where that photograph was taken, reoccupy that site, and look at it. So it's not as if this type of event is a one-off event. The town has been through this before, and then it's been rebuilt. 1941, it had a flood that took out both of its parks and took out some housing, took out its sewage treatment plant, and then those things were all rebuilt. So my perspective is that, of course, this not only can occur again, but certainly will occur again, and and we have to be taking steps to better prepare the town for the future. What would you most uh, advise or change about the direction Lyons is headed in terms of prep? That's a very big question because, of course, there have been a lot of steps taken uh, since the flood to make the town more robust. The utilities that have been reinstalled are likely to be stronger during the next event. The bridge that has just been completed is a lot larger, hopefully stronger. I think one of the most practical steps the town as a community can and should take is simply to be careful to remember the event. I mean, remember in tangible ways with monuments about town that show high water of 2013. Even a a mark on the side of a building can be effective that way. Yeah, interesting. There are some of those near Boulder Creek in Boulder, for instance, and it's so interesting to be standing on dry land and thinking, wow, I'd be up to my eyeballs, you know, if there were a flood. Yes. Are you a better researcher for having experienced a flood? 
Right now, Ryan, I'm, I'm working on um, flooding in Nigeria. There's severe flooding going on there now, and we're using satellites to map that flooding. So, of course, I'm more than ever motivated. And in particular, when I, when I read of people evacuated, displaced people, it doesn't sound as severe as fatalities, but I understand much better than I did what that really means to people. That's a huge disruption in people's lives and their livelihoods. They lose their jobs, they you know, lose schooling, things like that. So yes, now I'm, I'm more motivated, if that could be, than I was when I started the work. But Bob, thanks so much for being with us. You're welcome. Thank you very much for your invitation. Bob Brackenridge directs the Dartmouth Flood Observatory at the University of Colorado, and he lives in Lyons, which was walloped by a flood five years ago. Tomorrow, you'll meet a firefighter who risked his life to save more than 100 people from the fast-moving water. But something about that day still haunts him. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Is your garden ready for winter? Peak gardening season may be winding down, but there are still ways to keep your plants happy, whether they're outdoors or in. Master gardener Lonnie Godet of Berthid is back, and once again, she'll answer some of your questions alongside ours. Hi again, Lonnie. Hi, thanks so much for having me back. In case anyone doubts your street cred or your garden cred, you had the biggest zucchini, I understand, at the Larimer County Fair this summer. I did. That was the third year, and it was just under 12 pounds. Just under 12 pounds. What did you do with it? Fed it to the neighbor's goats. Okay. (laughs) They had zucchini for days. They did. Okay, what are you harvesting out of your garden right now? Right now, it is peak tomato season. So I've got a couple different varieties of tomatoes. One of them is the sweet tangerine tomato, which was actually a first place winner at Larimer County Fair. Has a great flavor to it, a good combination of acid and sweetness. It dries really well. It turns into sauce and just a lovely, productive tomato. A sweet tangerine tomato. You've brought one for me uh, to smell and to taste. Mm -hmm. And it's yellow. It is. I imagine that's in part why it's called a sweet tangerine. You dried this tomato. How did that turn out? It's wonderful. It's A tomato is a fruit, and when you dry it, you can either make it just plain, and then it tastes like candy, like a dried fruit, or you can ice sprinkle some of them with a little oregano and salt, and then they have a little more savory flavor. Right, and then this is a cornito rosso, I understand, which is a pepper, and it is blood red. This is coming out of your garden. It is one of my favorite peppers. It's a sweet pepper. It's not a bell pepper, so it does have that horn shape to it. It comes on really fast. It's super productive. And I give these away by the dozens because I have so many from just three plants. So it's a really great snacking pepper. I stuff them and then freeze them for winter. So in the middle of winter, we have something that tastes like the garden. All right. We've heard about the sweet tangerine tomato, the cornito rosso. And then there's a third bounty from your garden with just the greatest name. The Piglet Willie's French Black Tomato. Piglet Willies. Piglet Willies. Okay. And this one was a friend of mine, Elaine Spencer, who's also a master gardener, had given me one of these tomato plants last year. And it was so delicious that I went and bought seeds this year to plant some more. Piglet Willies. Piglet Willies, French black. This is something anyone could get their hands on. 
You'll have to Google a little hard to find seeds of this one. It's not that common, but I think it's well worth growing. Okay. Let's go to a question from a CPR listener. This is Stephen Frost of Boulder. Last year, I saved seeds for these variety of sunflowers called the teddy bear sunflowers. The sunflowers were huge, six to eight feet tall. I saved the seeds from them, and then I planted them. And this year, the sunflowers came up, and they're maybe 14 inches tall, and they have teeny tiny heads. I wonder if I did something wrong with uh, saving my seeds, and if you have any tips on that. Is he to blame? No. No, this is actually part of the genetics of a lot of our annual flowers, including vegetables. They are hybrids, and they don't come back true to seed. So it has nothing to do with the listener's ability to save seed and replant it. But when they create these hybrids, they just don't come back quite the same as they do from the original seed. From the original seed. Mm -hmm. All right. So no real tips, actually, for storing seeds in that case. Not in this case. No. When you look at your seed packet and you plant them the first year, if they say F1 hybrid on them, you know that you're not going to get the same plant if you save seeds from it. And that's fundamentally because of their hybridity. That's correct. Okay. Because their genetics. The other thing that can happen too, though, is that you can get cross-pollination. Like if you try to save squash seeds, your Hubbard squash could have cross-pollinated with a cantaloupe, which I think would be really disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I wasn't sure if that would turn out delicious or not. I'm not okay. sure, but I don't think I want to know. So Stephen Frost, uh, you've done nothing wrong. Uh, Alice Wiley of Pueblo would like to know if straw bale gardening is generally successful in Colorado. And Lonnie, first off, can you explain what straw bale gardening is? Sure. Straw bale gardening is where you take literally a bale of straw and you turn it on its ends that the strings are going around it horizontally. You condition this bale of straw, so you water it, and then you add fertilizer to start breaking the straw down. And then you put in either little um, pockets of soil or you coat the top of the straw bale with soil, and you grow the plants in the soil on the straw bale. And now, is this a raised bed? In other words, is it just sitting on earth, or this is somehow buried? No, it's sitting on top. It's sitting on top. It's okay. sitting on top. You could bury it theoretically, but um, as far as its success in Colorado, I tried it. I didn't have very good success at all with it, and I found it to be very messy. I've read from several of our other extension agents around the state where they also didn't have great luck with it. Not sure if it was all of us having a problem with it or if the method just doesn't work so well here in Colorado as it might in a more humid or rainy climate. It seems to me that in such a dry place, it would be rather easy for the straw to dry out fairly quickly. The outside of it definitely does. The inside holds a pretty good amount of water. Uh And, of course, if it's a vegetable garden, you've either got it on a system that's watering it regularly or you're going out there yourself because vegetables do require a lot of water in general. Okay, but you're a master gardener and you haven't had much luck with it. That's a day. It sounds like a dare. (laughs) Alice? (laughs) I will say the the biggest part of gardening is learning through mistakes and failures. So uh, I can't say that it has anything to do with the method itself. I Could just not be very good at that one. All right. So, Alice, proceed with caution, I suppose. I I would say so. Take away. Okay, here's another listener question. My name is Chuki Chen, and I would like to know how to prevent the little green caterpillars from eating my green bean seedlings. Little green caterpillars. 
Okay, so not knowing specifically what type of a caterpillar it is, what we can say is that most, if not all, caterpillars are well con- uh, controlled using Bacillus thuringiensis, which we also call BT, which is much easier to say. Yes, I agree. And yeah. what is BT? BT is a biologic control that actually makes it so that the caterpillar cannot digest its food and then it dies. So it's it's a little brutal, but it's a very safe to use pesticide. It's safe for our pollinators. It is not safe for other caterpillars that you might want to keep. So in the case of green beans, as long as you're not seeing caterpillars for tiger swallowtails or monarch butterflies, then it would be safe to use there. And this is a spray application? It is. It is. It's a, it comes in either a powder or liquid form, and you mix it up with water, and you just spray your plants, and you would do that according to the directions. So you'd mix it according to directions, and then you apply every so, so-and-so days, you know, seven to ten days according to directions. Okay, so BT. BT. Thanks for that question. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and uh, seasonally we check in with a master gardener. Lonnie Godet joins us to answer some of your questions and ours. Did you have any garden failures? Oh, yeah. This, yeah? <laughs> you didn't hesitate <laughs> on that one, did you? Oh, yeah. It was a really rough year for gardening. We had crazy hailstorms. Then we had very, very hot weather followed by cool, damp, wet weather. And that sets us up for, well, first of all, hailstorms are just decimating. Oh, yeah. They're so painful to watch what happens to people's gardens. They're horribly painful. They turn the whole thing into salsa all at once. Okay. (laughs) The best thing to do after a hailstorm is gather your wits, fertilize lightly, wait a few days. And then when you see what's actually dead and broken, go ahead and pull that off. But then take heart. It will come back. So hailstorms... They could take everything out. There's no doubt. But sometimes you'll get enough of a plant left that you can go on for the rest of the season. And then that mismatch of dry and wet. (sighs) Diseases. Diseases and insects. Diseases and insects. What did you see in your own garden? uh, My sweet meat squash that I was so excited for this year succumbed to a virus that is spread by the infamous squash bug. And there's not really much in the way of controls for squash bugs. There are no pesticides that truly work against them. The best things you can do, you can lay out a board in your garden, and in the morning you go and you flip that board over and you shake them off into a bucket of soapy water. You can squish the eggs that are on the undersides of the leaves, but you have to be really diligent and go out there almost every day to look for squash bug eggs. So will you have any sweet meat squash? Oh, no. None? No. you. The virus that takes out your, your squash, you will go out there in the middle of the day, and it'll look beautiful and healthy. And by evening, it is flat on the ground. Oh, my goodness. nothing left. It's fast. Oh, it's fast. Fast acting. Yeah. What does it mean to put your garden to bed as winter approaches? About this time of year, I start cutting my watering back a little bit, except on things like tomatoes. So I'm starting to cut water back. I'm starting to pull mulch back if needed. Um... There are a lot of plants that I'm pulling out of the ground right now. There were a few tomatoes I tried that I didn't like them, so I've pulled them out and fed them to the neighbor's goats. Okay. These are very lucky goats. These are lucky Uh goats. Well-fed goats. Well, and their person takes great care of them, too. Okay. And those plants—so the reason I don't compost, I don't compost squash, green beans, tomatoes. I really don't 
compost much of anything from my vegetable garden because a lot of the insects that cause us problems the next season can overwinter in compost. And then there's diseases. There's tomato spotted wilt virus or green bean mosaic virus. I don't want those in my compost where I'm going to put them back in the garden next year. So if if you don't have a goat, which I'm very lucky I do, but a lot of people don't, I will take them out in the lawn and just mow them in and let them dry off and blow away. I think of composting as being so good for the system. It is. It is. But most of us, especially in Colorado, because of our lack of moisture, cannot get our compost piles hot enough to kill (sighs) the bacteria, the viruses, and the insects. Okay. I feel like this is very good advice. You're going to be saving people pain in the next season. I hope so, because I've had that pain before. All of this was learned through garden pain. All right. Uh, To evergreens like ponderosa pine trees, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, some of them have brown patches. Does that indicate that they are suffering? Potentially, or it could just be that that is the old needle growth that is about to drop off. Just like all trees, even pines shed, usually they'll, or conifers, I should say, and you'll see them shed mostly from the inside area, not the tips of the branches. So if you see brown on the inside, but your tips are still green and look healthy, I typically don't worry about it. Wait a year. Make sure it looks good in the spring. So green tips, that's encouraging. Very encouraging. Okay. But they do have to shed. So there there are times where we see that brown on the inside and we worry. And if you have brown on the edges, then it is time to take a look at maybe your watering practices. It could They could be a little drought stressed. All right. Master Gardener Lonnie Godet, our listeners are wondering about indoor plants as well. We got a tweet asking for recommendations for plants that would do well in an office. And uh, they asked this in two ways. First, ideas for a space that doesn't get much light. Okay. What do you suggest? There are some great plants for low-light areas. Um, The first one I would suggest would be Sansevieria. They're also called mother-in-law tongue. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Or snake plant. They have a couple different names. Oh, I like that snake plant is also mother-in-law tongue. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's a little odd, but uh, Sansevieria, if you want to be correct. And it is a nice upright strap-type leaf, and it will take low light. It will eventually bloom, which is kind of fun, too, because you don't think of your green plants blooming. Ah, they almost have zebra-like stripes. They do. And they stand straight up and down. Exactly. The snake plant. They do. Thusly named. Okay, so that's for a space that doesn't get much light. Any other ideas? Yes. Cast iron plant, which is another kind of strap-like leaf, but it's a broader leaf. They're they're pretty. We grew them in New Orleans when I lived there. Cast iron Cast iron plant. Plant. Okay, I'm Googling this even as we speak. Ah, a nice-looking plant. Nice, deep green leaf. Indeed. Okay. Spider plants. Spider plants. Everybody knows their spider plants. They will take low light pretty well. And for an area of the office that gets lots of light, a few ideas. For a lot of light, you could have cacti and succulents, which are really fun to have indoors. Uh, Christmas cactus or Easter cactus. You can have all kinds of palms. There's dracaenas. There's corn plant. There's any pretty much any plant that you would grow indoors can be grown in a good sunny area. Even the ones we talked about for low light will not complain if you give them high light. All right. Here's another CPR listener. 
My name is Anna Duncan. I'm from Denver. And I was just wondering how to prep my cactus for the winter. Her cactus. You just mentioned cactuses. Yes. Cacti, cactuses indoors. What about outdoor cacti? Outdoor cacti, we just keep doing what we do. Okay. We don't water <laughs> them very much. Um, I do, if they're... If you can see the skin on them start to wrinkle like your fingers do if you've been in the tub too long, yeah, that might mean that they need a drink. But be careful. Check your soil because it could also mean that their roots are rotting and the soil is too wet. I see these are an indicator of either too dry or too wet. Or too wet. And that's pretty much most plants will show the similar symptoms because in one case, they don't have water to take up by their roots. In another case, their roots are dying off, so they can't take up the water. So the same same look can indicate two different problems. So the best thing to do then is to stick your finger in the soil and see if it's wet or dry. Last time you were here, we talked about drought-tolerant trees and landscaping. What about cactus for landscaping? I mean, they're, they're drought-tolerant, but can they survive Colorado's, say, high-altitude winter weather? Absolutely. Oh, Absolutely. And they are wonderful in the garden. So there are obviously a lot of native cacti that we have. We have a bunch of different um, prickly pears that bloom and bloom in many different colors. In fact, Denver has a gentleman who breeds and finds cacti for this area, Kelly Grumman's, and he has a website called coldhardycactus.com. And these are cacti that do well in winter. That do well in In Colorado and in winter, yes. And there's a book by a fellow um, out of Denver, or sorry, Colorado Springs named Leo Chance called Cacti and Succulents for Cold Climates. So that can give people some great pictures to look at to see what they might want in their gardens. Well, thanks for being with us. Well, thank you so much. I can't wait to try that sweet tangerine tomato in the Cornito Rosso. Bon appetit. I think I like to say that. Uh, Colorado Master Gardener and CSU Extension Volunteer Lonnie Godet of Berthoud answers your gardening questions and some of ours. Colorado beer drinkers are blessed with the renowned craft brew scene. But starting this month, the state's breweries and wineries and distilleries get some new competition. For the first time, Colorado is allowing tasting rooms to serve locally made sake, the traditional Japanese rice wine. Radio producer Dan Boyce couldn't resist this assignment, so we sent him to check out the state's first and at this point only sake tasting room, the Colorado Sake Company in Denver's Rhino District. You enter the tasting room by walking around the back of the building. Here we are. William Stewart. Uh, I'm the CEO, brewer, owner, all of the above. So we are in our tasting room. We're in our brewery. We're in kind of where everything started. We got big giant bags of rice over there on one side of the room and a, a bar on the other side of the room. Everything starts with the rice. So this rice has been polished to 50%. So you're down to the core. And to clarify, that's not hyperbole. Each grain is physically ground down. Yeah, over, the process is over five days, so they're running it through a tumbler. And it looks almost less like a grain of rice and more like little beads. Yeah, they're almost like little pearls. So the next step is uh, taking it over to our rice washer and having that machine 
just slowly take away that outside and clean the rice for us. We are steaming the rice um, so that the rice doesn't fall through the grates. We use bags. So basically we're growing mold. So we cook rice, add a mold spore, and the mold grows on the rice. Koji is the equivalent to malted barley for us. So we add yeast, uh, koji, water, rice, and we stir it for seven days. We bring up the temperature, bring it down, bring it up, bring it down. So we're basically cultivating yeast, and it's creating alcohol. For a month, we stir it. We pull samples, uh, we make sure the temperature's proper. Once the mash is done, we press it. So we add it to bags that let sake out, but not the rice. So we're trying to get all the moisture out of the rice, which is good sake, good flavor. And that presses in here. So we had to custom make this press because they don't make Japanese sake presses in America. So uh, we had to come up with an idea. So after this, it goes in a fermenter, and this is when we infuse. This is the best part of the yeast is still active, the koji is still active. So we add fruit. With the process of adding fruit, the yeast and the koji pull all the flavors from the fruit, which allows us to bring new flavors. Do I want to do rosemary this week? What's the weather like this week? You know, are we doing a pumpkin spice are we doing a you know a salted grapefruit so then from there it, we get to the tap we get to see people's reaction to it it's always the the fun challenge of getting someone to admit that they actually like sake well, I'm joined in the studio by William Stewart, the brewer and owner of the Colorado Sake Company. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Did you try the pumpkin spice infusion? Not yet. Not yet. Okay. Yes. <laughs> How about the rosemary? Rosemary's in the works at the moment. Um, we didn't want to jump the gun. Starbucks has to release it first, then us. <laughs> the, uh, the, on the pumpkin yeah, spice yeah, front. Yeah. Okay. Why sake for you, William? What's so special about it for uh, you? For me, it's, it's a beverage that... you. Know, uh, isn't introduced to a lot of people. You know, I've been a beer drinker. I've been making beer in home um, and uh, sake. I've worked in Japanese restaurants for the last you know, five years and really grown a love for it. And uh, for the last 2000 years, it really hasn't been um, changed. And uh, almost like the, the beer market 25 years ago was you know, now we have a craft beer market instead of commercialized beer. And so you want to bring a little of that spirit to the sake realm. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I wonder how the traditionalists will feel about your rosemary we'll, sake. We'll see how that goes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we've had breweries for a long time, wineries, distilleries. Why do you think sake is just joining the ranks? I mean, what, what's different about it that means it hadn't caught on until yeah. this point? So the last 10 years, you've seen the growth of sushi restaurants. Um, 10 years ago, my parents, my family wouldn't really eat sushi. And now it's a, a growing market. The sake market in the last 10 years has doubled. Um, same with the sushi consumption in America. So it's it's a market that's emerging. And um, and I think introducing people to uh, an approachable product is, is what we're here to do. But in order to join this market in Colorado, there had to be some changes to the law. Just briefly explain yeah. what you were up against. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it didn't exist before us. So we're, they said we were creating beer and we were selling wine and wineries can't sell beer. Because the process of making sake is a bit like brewing. Yeah. But yeah. the end product is more like a wine. Yeah, correct. So and there was gray area. Yeah. Yeah. The federal government makes us label it as wine. And so the state was going with that same approach, but they said we were making beer. Um, so we had to uh, talk to lawyers, couldn't figure that out. So I just called my local senator and she said, I'd love to help you. And they drafted a bill. We spoke in front of Congress, 
governor signed it, and it went into law August 8th. You spoke in front of the state legislature. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that means that a tasting room can open. Correct. Uh, but you could make sake before that? So we could make it. Yeah. Um, we just couldn't have the tasting room. And we feel the tasting room is a good way to educate um, the consumer. Uh, I want to talk about the flavor profiles of sake, the range of sakes. I mean, I think that if you spoke to anyone about beer or whiskey, yeah. they would tell you how differently one whiskey might be from the other, one beer might be from the other. Minus the infusions, which are obviously adding a certain flavor profile. Is there a lot of range in the, in the flavors of sake? Yeah, I mean, you can. I can use different yeast. I can use different water, different rice, and completely change it from a dry to a floral to uh, in between. Um, but we're trying to make it more approachable for Americans. I think there's a uh, with the Japanese verbiage, uh, things like that. It can be um, almost like you're getting into wine where it's. Uh, a little heavy for people. Yeah, learning a new language, maybe being intimidated by it. Yeah. I also think of hot sake and cold sake on menus. Yeah. What's the difference there besides temperature? Uh, sort of philosophically yeah. between those two. So traditionally uh, in Japan, you would drink warm sake when it's cold outside. Okay. Right? It's a warm beverage. Uh, in America, they um, they realized Americans like to take shots. And so hot sake became a phenomenon. And it's usually a less great of a sake, and there's a lot more um, to explore out there. How often do you have cold versus hot sake yourself? Uh, I typically only drink cold. Only drink cold. Yeah. I've also seen some sakes that are much cloudier than others. Yeah. So that's where you leave the unfermented rice to give it, they call it a nagori, and that is uh, just for mouthfeel, um, viscosity, things like that. So is Colorado ahead of the trend on sake, behind the trend in terms of U.S. production? We are definitely behind on the U.S. production. There's only 15 active sake breweries in the United States oh my goodness. that are from American brewers. And so uh, we are the eighth sake tasting room in the United States. So we are very much at the beginning of it. But, you know, the sushi consumption in the state is you know, we're some of the top in the nation and we're landlocked. Right. Yeah. Um, so it's 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 nice to see. Um, and I think it's an opportunity for us to introduce people to it. What, where is the hotbed of sake in the United States right now? So the industry has doubled in the last 10 years, but, um, and it's declined, uh, 50% in Japan. And so, oh, interesting. yeah, so we are at the forefront of seeing a movement in sake production, um, and just introducing people to it and showing how versatile it can be. And do you often think of pairings? In other words, when, when you think of a, a flavor profile for a sake, does one go better with chicken versus beef, that kind of thing? Yeah, we do. Um, sake has, we can make a more acidic sake, we can make a less acidic sake to oh. go with everything. Um, you could have sake with every meal. You obviously have a passion for this, an appreciation for the culture behind it. Yet I understand you are still waiting to take your first trip to Japan. Yes, we have a tip jar on the bar that says trip to Japan. <laughs> So the more people that come in, the quicker we get there. You're getting there a nickel yeah, at a time, exactly. I guess. Can brown rice be used to make sake? No, so brown rice still has the husk. That's right. Yeah. It's the same as white rice, yeah. it's just with a husk. Mm -hmm. Okay. Lots of different kinds of rice, though. Yeah. And the, as, as you've said, that can influence yeah. the flavor profile. So they make um, sake-grade rice now in California, and what they do is they... Uh, polish the rice down to what we like 50 percent so the center is the starch um, and that's what becomes sugar than alcohol okay um sake yeah. or sake sake 
sake. You can call it whatever you want. <laughs> You're so democratic, William. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for being with us. Yeah, of course. Appreciate your time. He's William Stewart, the brewer and owner of the Colorado Sake Company, the state's first sake tasting room. He opened his doors this month in Denver. Rembrandt has been called a 17th-century Francis Ford Coppola for the way he created drama in his artwork. And while the Dutch artist may be best known for his paintings, his print work is also stellar. More than 100 examples will be on display at the Denver Art Museum. Denver's the only stop for this new show called Rembrandt, Painter as Printmaker. It comes with new scholarship that reveals how Rembrandt was a shrewd marketer when it came to his creations. Curator Timothy Standring joins me. Hi, Timothy. Hello, Ryan. It's uh, great to be here. Nice to see you. First off, to this idea of Rembrandt as businessman. I understand he deliberately altered certain things, especially in his prints, based on who was buying them. Explain that. He was very sensitive to the people, his clients, and his clients really understood a great deal of art history. So that, uh, let's take him a rare print that a client would have bought by Lucas van Leyden. And Rembrandt would redo that subject matter just so that his clients would recognize that originality resided within the context of imitation. He was outdoing the famous Lucas van Leyden. Oh, my goodness. He was outdoing Rembrandt. I mean, he was outdoing Raphael. He's outdoing Titian. So in one instance... He dressed himself up with a a big blooming sleeve leaning on a ledge with um, a tambourine hat on, little feather in it. And it was modeled after Raphael's portrait of Baldessari Castiglione as well as Titian's portrait of Ariosto. And he saw both paintings at auction in Amsterdam and combined them. So it's actually quite silly because nobody would have dressed that way in 17th century Holland. It'd be like me going to work in an Eton a long coat suit with spats on and a top hat. It was anachronistic. But he knew that his clients had a hunger for this based on what he saw in the market, and then he would create his own versions of these things. Exactly. He, he um, What he did, uh, when you make prints, you make a first state. And then you, it's highly labor-intensive, and you pull the state, you, the impression off, you look at it, and you want to make corrections to it for your next state. Mm-hmm. Sometimes he'd work on 14 states, sometimes on seven or eight. And usually you'd make only one impression of the first state that was sufficient enough for your design prospect. And then what he'd do is he'd make about 15 first states. A client would come into his studio, ruffle through some images, and they'd pull it out and say, oh, my goodness, this is the first state. And he'd say, yes, it is unbeknownst to them that there's 14 <laughs> others. Now, how do we know this is because uh, my co-curator, Jakob Rutgers and Eric Hinderding did this seven-volume catalog raisonné of Rembrandt's prints. And they discovered these new impressions all across the world. And that's what we're bringing into this exhibition is the entrepreneurial side of Rembrandt's as a businessman. But his clients felt so special, little did they know. Correct. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we're kind of correcting that. But, you know, 
I mean, it's it's like everybody plays Mozart, everybody plays Shakespeare, and everybody plays Rembrandt. And, everybody and, wants and now that. it's Denver's turn mm. in a big, grand way. Well, we paid the Denver Art Museum a visit this week, and you were kind enough to walk us through this new show. You talked a lot about how Rembrandt played with choreography in his artwork. I think of that, of course, as a dance term. But here's how you describe it in Paintings and Prints. So in the raising of Lazarus here, he moved a young girl to the lower right-hand side and burnished her out. In other words, he he erased her uh, from the copper plate, and then he re-etched her, drew her in in a different position so that he could focus on the great drama of Lazarus rising from the dead. This is Hitchcockian. Hitchcockian. (laughs) And and the the effect is quite ghostly. Yes, yes. But but that's the drama that Rembrandt was able—remember, keep in mind that he was the exception. He wasn't the rule. Most people made reproductive prints during the 17th century. Rembrandt made prints to be works of art in their own right. He saw it as high art. Indeed. Uh Uh-huh. Yes. As high as his painting? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, one of the reasons why we called it painter as printmaker is because some of these prints are actually, they're painterly. Hmm. And his ability to manipulate and harmonize technical terms such as etching with dry point. So the, the, the middle values of chiaroscuro, the grays, everybody should go to the exhibition and look for the, the incredible permutation of grays from jet blacks to incredible whites and how he was able to pull this off in a, an incredible, harmonious way. Perhaps this is what they mean, Timothy Stantring of the Denver Art Museum, when they say a thousand shades of gray. On the, <laughs> on the, the tour, you mentioned that this is something people should come back to see multiple times. It's, That's a good way to sell tickets, I suppose, but it's well, because there's... It's, there, there are no tickets for this exhibition. Oh, so it's, it's absolutely free for members, and it's free for visitors uh, to first Saturdays of Colorado residents. Uh, so um, just become a member and you get in. Okay. A little selling point. You've, yes. It sounds like a marketer yourself. <laughs> it's not just Rembrandt. Uh, y- y- your point about needing lots of time, though, to see this exhibition, I think, uh, rings true when you showed us another print. A number of people frequently ask me what my favorite print is. And we're standing right in front of it, and it's the three trees. We have to get closer. You'll see that there's a cart in the background with farmers People are fishing, not very successfully in the foreground of the pond. And in the little bower right below here is a lovely little couple, a great poetic love note. I really had to strain to see this couple. It's almost as if some of the imagery is hidden for the viewer to find. Do you think that's true? Oh, yes, but but he's playing to his collectors. Uh, the, the, his clients who would, who would purchase these prints... They would, they would all be thrilled. Remember, people passed around prints with, and drank probably uh, ale or um, possibly champagne, I doubt it. But uh, what they did is they, they would pass around the prints at a table and they would talk about them. And then some people would actually glue them to the walls. And, um, and collectors, this is the beginning of collecting works on paper in the 17th century in a big way. And was that more accessible than paintings 
in terms of it, price, in terms of who it reached? Uh, it was certainly less expensive, okay. even, even though most of his prints sold for a couple of guilders. But the famous 100 guilder print, which we have and we highlight, is equal to, um, let's say, um, a clerk at a McDonald's, uh, somebody working at McDonald's, three years of that salary full-time was equal to one paper. I see. It was still rarefied. Hugely. Yeah. You're yes. listening to Colorado Matters. We're talking about Rembrandt, painter as printmaker, which is just about to open at the Denver Art Museum. You said that, that people would glue these up to the wall? Um, yes. I mean, they would. They yeah. found a prints in various Dutch homes glued to the wall. But, but most people – but those are the, the engravings after works of art. But Rembrandt prints, they were probably prized and, and uh, kept very precious. It does uh, strike me that these prints are some 300 years old. What is their state? 350 their... years old. Yeah. And oh, uh, they're incredible. In fact, the, the collection that we've assembled for the Denver Art Museum comes from the Bibliothèque Nationale de France. It's the first collection formed during the 17th century outside of Holland. Louis XIV acquired most of these prints that we're showing. They've rarely seen the light of day. You can rub your finger. Well, you're not supposed to, but you can you can see the little worms of ink on the top of these sheets of paper. They're they're just incredible. It's interesting because the the, the he was the Sun King, right? Yes, yes. He didn't much like the Dutch and William of Orange, but he liked the Dutch art, I suppose. Well, uh, there was. Uh, acquisitions of various Dutch paintings as well as this print. He bought it from a colleague, uh, Ebbe de Merol, and and then Merol took the money and formed his second collection. So this goes all the way back to 1667. I want to note that a lot of Rembrandt's work features the everyday. Yes. Uh, Mendicants, beggars. uh, A butcher, peasants. Yes. Why do you think he chose to focus on those kinds of subjects? They're inexpensive models. Okay. <laughs> Boy, Remember, he, he, he doesn't go, go back to the businessman. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. First, he starts off with the least expensive model, his portrait, then his mother. Then he does uh, people on the street. And then he incorporates those into storytelling. Mom, are, moms work for cheap, apparently. Yes. Okay. Thanks so much My for pleasure. this preview. Really nice to see you again. Don't forget to come to the exhibition. Oh. Yeah. He's as much a really he's as much a marketer as Rembrandt. <laughs> he's Timothy Standring of the Denver Art Museum and he co-curated Rembrandt Painter as Printmaker. The show opens this weekend and runs through January 6th. All right, finally today our feedback segment Loud and Clear. On Monday, champion swimmer Missy Franklin was my guest. She grew up in Centennial and won multiple gold medals at the London Olympics. But a disappointing performance in Rio, along with injuries, sent her into a depression. For me, I think my root cause was I had based my identity completely into the sport of swimming. And I hadn't realized I was doing that because for the first however many years of my career, things were going so well. So, of course, it was easy for me to say, no, I'm so much more than what I can do in a pool you know, while I'm out there breaking world records and winning gold medals. But as soon as that goes away, it's like, oh, my gosh, what else do I have to offer? Like, I, I am nothing. Franklin says she had to learn to love herself when she wasn't winning in the pool. 
Listener Mark Cathcart of Louisville offered some great advice related to this, and I wanted to share it. Mark tweeted, Next time you meet someone new, don't ask what they do, ask what they enjoy. No person should be defined by what they do. He goes on, It took a long time for me to stop doing it. Standing at a party, feeling kind of awkward. Someone new walks toward you and says, Hi, what do you do? Well, thanks, Mark. I'm going to give it a try and ask, what do you enjoy instead? You might enjoy being with us tomorrow evening at the Newman Center in Denver. I'll be interviewing comedian and author Adam Caton Holland about his new memoir, Tragedy Plus Time. Tickets are still available at CPR.org. You can see radio in the making. Thanks for listening to Radio in the Making. I'm Ryan Warner at Colorado Public Radio News in Centennial.